I'm Stephanie Francis Ford, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. My guest today is Ellen Freeman. She's a Pittsburgh lawyer who immigrated to the United States from Ukraine in 1993, and now she has an immigration law practice. Besides helping corporations hire international employees, often for pharmaceutical work, she's also doing pro bono work to help recent Ukraine immigrants who are moving to the United States. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you so much. The first question I wanted to ask you, is it just, you're not just helping people in your area of Pennsylvania, you're probably helping people all over the country, right? That's right, Stephanie. Immigration is federal law. An attorney can practice um, outside of their state jurisdiction or outside of the state where they're licensed. I'm licensed in New York and Pennsylvania, but I have been helping Ukrainian refugees all over the country. Have you noticed since March, when people are coming over, are there some states that are more popular than others? And if so, which ones? It's not based on states. It's probably based on localities that have an existing Ukrainian community, like Chicago, Mm -hmm. like Philadelphia, Sacramento, and California. Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania has an old Ukrainian community, although um, it's not growing super fast or as fast as we would have liked to see it. We see Ukrainian flags now on houses all over the United States. I was so pleased to see it in Columbus, Ohio and other places. So we know that people are very supportive of um, the Ukrainian flight. So it sounds like for people coming here from Ukraine, it's more to the Midwest rather and the East Coast and on the West Coast or the West in general, maybe not as much. Probably because traditionally the Ukrainian communities were founded around the areas that needed workers in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, So, of course, like steel mills, coal mines, agricultural places, you know, of course, New York and New Jersey is a very large area, but it's a large area for immigrants from all over the world. So there are some places where you may find Ukrainian community and you didn't expect it. But again, like it would be, you know, they're non-existent, for example, um, in Texas. We've heard about people going there and not being able to acclimate or find services. Another big issue is the provision of state benefits. Some states are better than others, even in providing federal benefits that should be uniform around the country. But we're seeing Connecticut or New York being a lot more generous to immigrants as opposed to some of the red states. And is that something people who want to come here from the Ukraine are are focused on is, you know, some states, the ones that tend to be more anti-immigrant, perhaps people don't want to go there. Or are they thinking about the abortion issue right now or all all those things many Americans are thinking about? Is that figuring in people's head, too, as they decide whether they want to come to the U.S. and where? Question. I would say that with the proliferation of internet and people becoming more connected around the world, immigrants who come to the United States as a general statement are much more aware, sophisticated, and educated about the United States than immigrants even 20 years ago or even 15 years ago. I think that a lot of the times they come because either they have a job offer or they have relatives living in a specific jurisdiction. They don't necessarily know off the bat how the community is going to treat them or what benefits may be available to them. Obviously, the cost of living in New York is a lot higher than in places like Pittsburgh or Columbus, but their relatives may be living in those areas. So they would be going to Chicago, New York and New Jersey, as opposed to, again, coming to a smaller places. And then once they settle, 
sometimes like it happened even with the Bosnian refugees, they would be moving to specific jurisdiction because over time they realized that those communities are more welcoming. So you obtained a master's degree in Ukraine and you managed a nonprofit. And then when you came to the U.S., you initially got job got a job as a waitress, right? I think it's a path of most immigrants. You know, when you come to the United States, it's very difficult to get back to the level where you were. And what I'm finding now representing so many foreign nationals that they're less willing to compromise their careers their interest uh, and their expectations. So even with Ukrainian refugees, a lot of people contact me when they're still in Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria. They call me from there because they got my name and they're asking me questions prospectively. And they want to have businesses. They want to work professionally. They don't want to go back to medical or law school again. Are there other countries that maybe um, are better about recognizing the degrees? people obtained in Ukraine? Interestingly enough, each country has its own rules. I uh, was presented with the situation just last week where somebody's bachelor's degree from Austria wasn't worth anything in the United States, just the high school. But in the UK, that person can go straight into a master's degree program. So for the purposes of United States immigration, the person's background is equal only to a high school. So we have very high standards in the United States for academic requirements. We look down on everybody else's degrees other than maybe few elite universities around the world like Oxford or Cambridge or you know, few very prestigious international business schools. Everything else we don't recognize. And we require people to provide evaluations of their degrees. There is a whole industry that was created around that. And large universities do their own evaluations. They have departments credentialing within the universities because generally it's done by professors. So the majority of immigrants, unless they specifically come for a job in the United States, unless they're intercompany transfers, they already worked for the company abroad. It's always a step down and it's like always like wasted time and lost opportunities. And you're always working up the hill to make up for the lost time. So it sounds like then with some of the people that you're helping now, they are in a similar situation as you were. It's a little bit better now, I would say, because, again, um, they're much more aware, much more educated, much better prepared before they come to the United States. They realize clearly um, what their life is going to be. They have friends, relatives, acquaintances. They can read about life in the United States. There are a lot of blogs and um, expat materials that they can familiarize themselves with. I didn't have any of those resources. I think, you know, there is such a stark difference with the existence of internet and non-existence of internet and the ability of, of, for us to communicate through social media. You can just see how the last 30 years, um, you know, obviously are very different from new immigrants. And a lot of them are not willing to come here and start those manual jobs. They say, I don't want to be a nanny. I don't want to clean houses. I don't want to take on those jobs. I would much rather go to a European country where I can um, use my degree and have a more professional position, number one. Number two, there are a lot of social benefits in those countries, especially for refugees coming from Ukraine, such as Germany or Netherlands, um, UK, 
they can receive some public benefits versus in the United States, it's been very, very difficult. And we always pride ourselves that being self-made or not asking for public benefits or not giving public benefits to immigrants. And so not even giving them documentation a lot of the times. So I think that sentiment is finally coming to bite us where we see that people are not that interested coming here, but the majority of American public knows very little about their immigration system. I would say that the vast majority of people are ignorant of the American immigration system. They just know about citizenship. They think it's just there is some kind of pathway for citizenship and the politicians will you know, promulgate that theory that you can get a pathway to citizenship where it doesn't even exist for the majority of the people. And then they always just want to close the border and think that nobody should be coming here and nobody should be working here. And yet they're faced with the aging population, lack of employees in any kind of field of healthcare, lack of employees in the fields, you know, rotting fruits, you know, um, everything where you can say that we need workers, but then we're not willing to make any changes to our immigration law to create a really sensible immigration system. So it sounds like even though you've been very busy helping people on a pro bono basis, there's probably people from Ukraine or there's more people moving to Europe than to the United States, right? And not just the border, like you've mentioned, there's people in Poland, but I, it sounds like maybe people don't want to stay in Poland for the long term. Right. So um, the estimate states that 10 million people left Ukraine since the beginning of the war on February 24th. Um, Two million people went to Poland. And of course, it's very difficult for one European country to absorb, you know, 10% of population all of a sudden who are eligible for uh, public benefits and need housing and school and health care. And I really applaud Poland for all the efforts that they've made on welcoming Ukrainian citizens. Some Ukrainians went to Romania, Moldova, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, of course, like neighboring countries. And then they are trickling further into Italy, Spain, the Netherlands, and Germany. But those countries have very specific limits on how many people they can take as well. And they've been doing all they can, but the United States and Canada then open specific programs on inviting uh, Ukrainian citizens to come here. And it's unprecedented in our history. It's the largest movement of um, European immigrants into the United States since World War II. For most recently with Ukraine? Yeah, since the program oh. was open in April. It's a very new program. It's called Uniting for Ukraine. And it's the first one in the history that's fully electronic, where um, any American citizen can sponsor Ukrainians to come uh, to the United States. And it's really the level of sponsorship is minimal. It's not anything that's um, expensive or difficult. It's a rather simple um, online application process with the proof of financial ability to sponsor somebody in the United States, but then it's not enforced in terms of whether they're really sponsoring them, really providing housing or providing um, help in the United States. The program is unlimited. Um, there is a lot of misinformation out there when President Biden said that we're going to welcome 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. So that's refugees. That's not um, invitees or participants in this Uniting for Ukraine program. That program is unlimited. We can take a million people, potentially. I think we already met 100,000 people as of last month. So we're probably 
not all 100,000 came to the United States, but 100,000 have been approved through the program. Huh. That sounds really interesting and much easier than the way the process used to be, right? Definitely. Um, It's a really great program. We just have to make sure that there is somebody in the United States to provide services to the new arrivals, you know, such as um, helping them to find affordable housing, finding schools or summer camps while it's still summer, um, finding health care. They are eligible for a free health care for children. In certain states, they can get cash benefits such as food stamps. They are eligible to apply for employment authorization. Unfortunately, the program doesn't include automatic employment authorization in it. So, so far, people who have been coming to the United States either have close relatives here or have money so that they know they can support themselves for at least a few months until they receive employment authorization. And unfortunately, with all COVID and all the uh, mismanagement uh, that happened um, in the previous administration with the immigration service, like purposely trying to destroy that system, We have very long processing times for all immigration benefits and especially employment authorization documents. So it can take 13 months to receive an employment authorization. So if you're only coming here for two years to wait until the war is over and you can go back home, we invite you here uh, for temporary safety. It's a temporary program. It's not a permanent green card program. And it takes a year to get employment authorization, people are not going to be interested coming. Ukrainians want to work. They don't want to just sit here and be a burden on the society. Tell me, in regards to your pro bono cases, helping people from Ukraine, what is a typical week like for you now? And how does that compare to, I believe it was in late February, when Russia invaded Ukraine? How has life with the pro bono work changed for you or has it? So it's actually um, not busy because initially when the war started, um, first we were all in disbelief that it will even start. And then we were all hoping for a quick resolution. Nobody was expecting for it to go as bad, um, as kind of deep as it went, you know, the bombing all over the country. I'm still waking up every morning and checking where the bombs went, what has been destroyed, like how the city that I'm from um, was affected. I'm from Odessa and um, the Russians have been bombing around Odessa. Just um, yesterday morning, I woke up to learn that 13 summer houses have been destroyed. It's really very painful. And now I'm working on actually a very new initiative and a program that doesn't have to do that much directly with law, but has to do with helping Ukrainians. I am looking for um, orthopedics or pediatric orthopedic surgeons around the country who specialize in prosthetics because there are a lot of Ukrainian children who lost limb as a result of this bombing and we're trying to bring them to the United States to different hospitals to help them with the prosthetics and these kids will need treatment for the rest of their life because as they grow their prosthetics change and they need to be fitted with new ones. And then it's not very easy for somebody to learn to operate with a a prosthetic limb. So I have been doing and working on that now a couple hours every day. And I already got several hospitals that have committed that they would be reviewing dossiers for Ukrainian children. So that's a very important project that's very dear and near to my heart. And then 
I respond to all the questions that I receive when people ask how to complete documents or if something is normal or not normal or what I would recommend doing. And then I'm also accepting um, certain cases where I help um, United States citizens to bring their relatives or loved ones um, into the United States, mostly uh, parents of US citizens, because there is a specific category for them. So we complete all the forms, we make all the filings, and we then work with a congressional office in whatever jurisdiction the US citizen resides to expedite processing of their documents and make sure that the documents are transferred from one embassy to the next so that it's closer to Ukrainian border rather than sending people to Frankfurt, Germany, because that's the American consulate that has been designated for processing of Ukrainians. It's not easy to get there. It's expensive. Um, you have to cross multiple borders. There's no direct flights, of course. So we're trying to consolidate those cases in Warsaw. What is the name of the project with the orthopedic services? I don't know whether there is a, a name for it. I'm working with the Embassy of Ukraine in Washington, D.C., but I will ask if we will create. It's not a specific nonprofit. It's actually a project of the um, Ukrainian Ministry of Health. I see. So it's a it's a direct initiative. And you see pictures all over Facebook or maybe because I'm from Ukraine, I get to see a lot of articles about it. And it's extremely pay, painful to look at those kids who just uh, lost parts of their legs and arms. And so once we um, organize the hospitals and orthopedic surgeons, then I will be working on completing visa application forms for the kids or figuring out what program may work best for them, like a humanitarian parole to come to the United States for treatment. Do you have a ballpark sense for someone in Ukraine who wants to come to the U.S. about how much would it cost in U.S. dollars? Well, First, you have to get out of Ukraine, or maybe they're already in Hungary or Poland, but some of them um, returned back to Ukraine because the conditions in Poland were difficult. There were 10 people living in one room. So they have to get back to outside of Ukraine to be able to take an international flight. And you know that the flights went up in price, just like for all of us with the prices of gas. So that's probably a couple thousand dollars um, around that ballpark. And then I think it's really about where you're going to live in the United States and do you have somebody to live with or do you need to rent an apartment? And you again, um, everybody has been seeing articles that because of the interest rates and the lack of new construction and some market speculations that the rents are going up. It's very difficult for Americans to get affordable housing. Um, so it's going to be the same for these families. You know that the price of used cars went up. It's impossible to buy a used car. And so that's going to be very challenging because, again, people will tend to go to New York because of the public transportation. You come to a place like Columbus, and if you don't own the car, how are you going to navigate um, your life there? How are you going to get from point A to point B? Right. And are there administrative fees or legal fees, too? Or it's just a matter of getting out and getting here? Good question. So the Uniting for Ukraine program is completely free, but people have to apply for employment authorization document once they come to the United States. The Immigration Service made a great progress just a few weeks ago announcing that the application can be completed online. But those who complete their application electronically online are not eligible to waive the application fee of $410. So you may choose to apply by mail and complete the form explaining, I just got here, I don't have any money to pay the filing fee 
to the immigration service, but the processing times will be extremely difficult. So different. So if you apply by mail, as I was explaining earlier, the processing can take a year. If you apply online, the processing can take just six weeks. So you're going to go and borrow those $410 at whatever interest rate that may be to pay the filing fees and to get your documents delivered in a more expedited manner. I mean, life in the United States generally is expensive now. We see what's happening to the poor in our country and the demand for the food banks and uh, social services. So it's really difficult probably for people who are Americans and who are struggling to say that we should be welcoming refugees when they have lack of social services and affordable housing. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about your personal experiences of coming here as a young woman and then making your way to law school. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Ellen Freeman. She's a Pittsburgh immigration lawyer who came to the United States in 1993, and she's now helping other people from Ukraine trying to live here. 
Um, so you came here a few years after the Soviet Union fell, and I read that you were you were divorced. You were twenty three, right? Mm-hmm. And you had a young child. Do you mind telling us what drove your decision to move here? So my family is, was going to immigrate twenty years earlier. It took me twenty years to come to the United States. My whole life probably would have been very different had we were able to immigrate in nineteen seventies. In about 1973, the United States and Israel started accepting Jews from the former Soviet Union, and we were allowed to come under the Lautenberg Amendment to the Appropriations Act that has been extended and still exists and extended to this day, that recognizes religious minorities from the Soviet Union. Jews, um, as Baptist and other religious minority groups were allowed to come, but that Iron Curtain went down really quickly at about 1975 or 76, and we didn't immigrate in the window that was available. So my parents hired me an English tutor before I ever went to primary school, and they were always telling me that we're going to uh, maybe go live in Australia, and I'm going to see koala bears and kangaroo to encourage me to study English. And then the Iron Curtain went down. We never immigrated. We tried again in 1980s and were even studying Italian uh, because we knew that we would have to live in Rome for a period of time on our way to um, another country. And then eventually I was only able to come in May of 93. So it's my whole life I was planning to come. Do you have thoughts, and obviously we have different experiences and this is what we knew, but... I'm struck by you learned two different languages as a child, thinking you'd be moving, and it took some time. And can you just kind of give, what was that like? You have children now, right? And they've had a different experiences. Do you have a sense of what, and I guess if that's, but probably many people were doing that at the time in Ukraine, right? Everyone was planning, many people were planning to leave. I mean, Jews were a small percentage of population, so, you know, it was pretty um, not talked about, you know, it's like you grow up in this dual reality when every day you're told don't repeat what you hear at home outside of home. You know, uh, my grandfather mm-hmm. used to wake up every morning and listen to Voice of America because he spoke six languages. So he would listen to English or German and would tell what were the news in the world at breakfast. And then I wasn't allowed to repeat it outside of home. I actually studied French in school, not English, because I studied English with a tutor. Um, I like languages. At some point, I studied six in um college, I studied Latin and like old Russian and Serbo-Croatian. I don't remember them that well uh, anymore. Kind of English took everything over and maybe because I, I'm a lawyer, I write and I English and I uh, in English and think in English, I no longer can speak those other languages well. Even with Ukrainian, I feel like a dog sometimes that I understand absolutely everything and it's really difficult for me to construct a proper sentence because I don't hear that language um, around me anymore. So I'm really trying very hard and I hope my uh, clients are patient with me. I'm trying to listen more to the Ukrainian media to kind of reacquire that language back. I'm curious, did your family think about moving to Israel too? Um, I don't think so. I don't think they really were um, planning to move to Israel. I went to Israel in 1992 for a month uh, for a training of the future leaders of the Jewish communities. Um, I was working for a 
very large American Jewish nonprofit, and I was uh, rewarded, I suppose, or recognized. Um, so I was the only person from the area where I was from to, to go on the trip. And there were people from all over Soviet Union. There were maybe a dozen of us. And we got to see the whole Israel. It probably was a trip similar to birthright uh, trips where you go and see the country and learn about its history and visit all the interesting sites. But um, I don't think we were ever planning to go there. It's great to know that this place exists and you know it's it's there for us. But you know we were probably planning to come to the United States because where that's where the family and friends were. And were there times leading up like a year before 1993, were there times you thought, well, maybe I'll just stay in Ukraine because this is going to be very difficult? I'm not sure that I ever like really was planning to stay. Um, it got to the point that um, my whole family left. Both of my grandmothers were living in the United States and then my in-laws at that time went to Canada and we were still there. And while the life was getting better and maybe it was a little exciting that the country was changing, I really didn't think that long-term, like I belong there or I should stay there. And I never planned to live uh, far away from my um, mom. And so I, of course, uh, I was planning to come to the United States. It was very difficult leaving at that point because you have your life and your job and friends and feel really um, comfortable with it. And, you know, I feel like it took me um, an extra time, you know, kind of parting with the job, leaving everything behind, organized and coming to the United States. And then, of course, the shocking experience of being an immigrant in a new country, especially coming directly to Pittsburgh, where, you know, there were not a lot of people like me, where we were looked down upon that we were this like lost tribe, you know, we weren't very religious, we weren't that observant, we didn't know certain things. To this day, you know, there is no program outside of New York or New Jersey, I would say, that helps like Soviet Jews kind of reconnect um, with the reality uh, of being Jewish or what does it mean to not ever go to a Sunday school or not ever go, you know, and, and, and it, it, I think it was like a very difficult time. Uh, did I regret that I came? Probably a few times <laughs> um, in the beginning, but then you just kind of move on. And for the self-preservation purposes, I just had to like kind of like put a wall between my former life and my new life and say that life never existed. And I'm just looking forward and moving forward. And I have a nosy question. I will apologize ahead of time. Uh, you had a young child. Assuming the child's father was still in the picture, how did you work out custody? The immigrator, did he come too? Or was he already here, maybe? I think I was lucky because at that time, um, you know, Soviet laws were still applying. The child stayed with the mother. It was a lot easier than in the United States. And lucky for me, I didn't have to deal with the custody or um, with sharing. And it was his decision to stay there because... He, he came to the United States for a visit a couple of times, and he was um, a celebrity um, of sorts, and so participated in a program similar uh, to Saturday Night Live. So he really was a celebrity and realized that his life in the United States will be very different, and so never came and actually stayed. It doesn't mean that everybody who have an opportunity to come to the United States really comes again. The American supremacy or like the perception of a lot of people is that absolutely everybody in the world wants to come and live in the United States. And 
you know, I would recommend people to go look at our airports and compare them when they travel and look at some other places. Not everybody wants to be here. Like we need to um, readjust our understanding of where people want to live. And that if they come here, they really contribute to our society and they enrich our society with their knowledge, with their culture, with their um, influence on the United States. And we can't look down upon them. So when you got here and you got your first job as a waitress, how did you get it? And did you have some nervousness about that? So that wasn't like a job I really got. I was here for two days and somebody in the community who knew that the place needed waitresses, like think about like we were here legally, we were refugees. Um, so it wasn't unauthorized employment. And you come in and you kind of work your way up because somebody um, in the immigrant community is going to take advantage of you and say, oh, you need a job. Well, here is a job and you don't need to go and fight for it and look for it. And it takes you time to realize, well, where do I even look for a job? This is before LinkedIn, right? Um, and I realized that without an MBA degree, I can't prove that I can manage an organization. I can't prove that I have any experience. And my master's degree was in Russian language and literature, which was use, useless at that time. They told me the Cold War is over. Nobody's interested in Russian. There is nothing you can do with that degree. Now, and I have the impression from what I read about you, you were working as a salesperson at Saks Fifth Avenue. And that was when you decided to go to law school. Could you tell me a bit about that decision? So I always wanted to go to law school. I wanted to go to law school in the Soviet Union, but at that time I couldn't do so. I graduated um, high school in 1984. There you graduated at 16, not at 18, like in the United States. And it was still Soviet Union and only um, men were allowed to pretty much go to law school. And then you have to have mandatory two years of experience because just like in all other European countries, law degree there is an undergraduate five-year degree. It's not a uh, postgraduate degree. So I was never able to get to law school and that was a dream of mine for my whole life. It wasn't that I you know, just made it up on the spot. Um, I was trying to get different jobs. I was working for a Jewish nonprofit in Pittsburgh for about nine months and it wasn't a happy job. I was very unhappy there. I was working with older women. It was very boring for me and not challenging at all. Um, and so I was going to get a job in a hotel and I went to the orientation and realized that, you know, that wasn't the job that I'm going to enjoy. And I just walked into Saks Fifth Avenue and completed an application. And then every month or every other month, I was trying to apply for a management position or get promoted. And eventually I got uh, promoted and became a human resources assistant. What department did you start at in Saks? Active sportswear, I think it was called. Like, mm. I don't remember, but I was selling Dickie and Y. And Donna Karen was really big, I early see. 90s. Right. <laughs> I remember that time period. So from that experience, you're just like, you know what, I'm going to go to law school? Is that what you were thinking? So I started looking at MBA programs earlier and realized that I need to take calculus because in uh, Soviet Union, again, the degrees are very specific. So if you study literature, you really study languages and literature. You're not taking any math as an undergrad. And it was logistically very difficult for me to figure out how to take a calculus class, like in the community college when I don't drive and there is no public transportation and I needed some money for it. I applied for a Hebrew free loan and they declined giving me a loan for it. So I didn't have any money. Um, I was a single mom. I was making $6.50 an hour. 
And I decided that I'm going to take some time and figure out what I'm going to do. And I started looking into other graduate degree programs. And um, somebody told me about LSAT, who was also considering it or knew more about it. So I bought a book about LSAT testing and realized that even if they promote me in Saks Fifth Avenue to the next job, I won't be able to afford the daycare uh, or summer camp and parking downtown. And so it was a very pragmatic decision that I'm going to law school, I'm going to apply for loans, take loans. I finished paying them last year. It took me two years. Congratulations. <laughs> now, you also, you got a master's degree in public affairs concurrently with your JD, right? Mm -hmm. And I was curious... Were you inspired by the fact that you already had a master's degree from Ukraine and it wasn't taken away from you when you came to the U.S., but I mean, it, it, it wasn't recognized here. Did that drive you more to get the two degrees concurrently? You know, I just like to study. I think if I had uh, money and opportunity, I would have PhD. I really like <laughs> I like going to school. I'm one of those people who's never bored in the lecture. Um, so that was one reason and the other reason was that once I took LSAT, I realized that the classes don't start till the fall semester in August. What am I going to do until August? Um, and the master's degree in international affairs had a spring semester that started in January. So I was able, I was just keeping myself busy. Did you go to the night program for the JD or oh, full-time? Program. No, full-time day program. So for young women with young children who are immigrating to the U.S. from Ukraine today, do you have any advice for them? I think you just have to realize that when you make that leap and that change, that um, it's a huge transformation and you have to work extremely hard, harder than you've ever worked, manage and, you know, multiple projects. There is no work-life balance at all. To be true. And, um, you know, and the, I, I think it's just trying to do your best. I think there were periods of time when my daughters were pretty unhappy with me and thinking that my job or my school was very important to me. Um, and they may have felt secondary, but as they grew up, they realized, you know, um, how important it was um, for the family, what I did and kind of like was able to move us into a different class. Um, and so I think that that's worked out over time. But, you know, as a mom, you always feel torn, um, you know, with your time management and with the decisions that you make. I think every female lawyer who has children uh, was in that position at one time or another. And for lawyers who want to help people immigrating from Ukraine, do you have advice on how to pursue that, either with legal services or non-legal work, like mentoring or the orthopedic program? You mentioned, I know the ABA has some offerings, but um, what are your thoughts? So there are lots of organizations right now that offer training for non-immigration lawyers to help with the immigration issues. I uh, do so myself, even helping people to um, learn the citizenship process and help with the citizenship applications, but highest all over the country and online over Zoom offers a lot of training classes. Um, New York Bar Association does as well. And I'm sure other states do so. And American Immigration Lawyers Association, different chapters periodically offer training as well for both citizenship or TPS applications. We need a lot of English as a second language tutors. You don't need to be a lawyer. 
um, anybody who is a native speaker and willing to practice with a new arrival would be really, really great. And then, of course, if you're connected to somebody who may be an orthopedic surgeon or connected to a children's hospital, that's something that there is a great need for. Um, and unfortunately, it's not going to go away anytime soon. The war is not ending that fast, and these children will need continuous need for the prosthetics. So it would be really great uh, to have that project going. Do you think it's possible that some people who have immigrated this year, they'll be here for the long term? So that's actually the concern of the Ukrainian government, because the program is temporary. People are invited to come here for a period of two years. And then if the war continues or the reconstruction of Ukraine takes time, they will probably be allowed to continue staying here. This is not a permanent program. This is not the same as Afghanistan, where people have no place to return or will be really killed if they go back to Taliban. Um, the Ukrainian government would very much like Ukrainian citizens to go back to Ukraine, and that's a concern coming as far as the United States, that it's not going to be easy or cheap to return. So we'll see how um, the process develops. Right now, it's really mothers and children who are coming to the United States, a lot of moms, because um, there is a mandatory conscription in Ukraine, so males between the ages of 18 and 60 have to stay and fight for their country, and they want to fight for their country. So but the, the separated families will probably not stay here um, long-term, and it's really just the temporary safety and refuge that we provide to them. Okay. That's everything I want to ask you today. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story with us. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us too. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.